do. I, uh, I just am uh, excited about it for so many reasons and so many things that are life-giving to our congregation. You know, the press has uh, uh, got a hold of, the, uh, of this seminar. I don't know if you've read some of the articles uh, that have been written about uh, this Crown Point Church that's sponsoring a seminar on the African-American church legacy, uh, but they're a little interested in a Crown Point Church doing that. I wonder uh, what that might, uh, what that exactly might mean, but I like what it says. And so uh, we're, if you can't make it, be in prayer and uh, may God use it to increasingly uh, expand uh, his gospel work and his gospel ministry in this community through our church and for his glory. Well, we have a lot to talk about today, and part of the reason that we do is that we took a month off while we celebrated the birth of Jesus. And uh, so what happens over a month, and even sometimes over a week, is that our memories get a little foggy about what we had just been talking about the last time we were in 1 Corinthians. We've been doing this series in 1 Corinthians uh, beginning in the fall, and uh, we'd worked our way up through uh, most of chapter 3. And so let me just review uh, with you a little bit the last thing that we talked about, because we're going to be springing off of it into our uh, our next our, our, our message this week and next week. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, let me, read the, uh, let me read the text again. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone, uh, anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. So the Apostle Paul here is using a picture, this is a, a very comfortable picture, a very familiar picture for us, uh, of the church. And he says the church is like a building. And when we were studying this, I used a graphic that I think is helpful for what uh, Paul is saying here, uh, that he says, listen, I want you to realize that the church and the gospel ministry is like a building. And the foundation of this superstructure is Jesus Christ. And what that means is his person as the Son of God and also as, as fully human. His work in dying on the cross for our sins and his resurrection from the dead. And... Uh, his gospel, which is that anyone who believes in him as Savior and Lord will be saved from the penalty of their sins. And so this person, Jesus, is the foundation of the church. The whole superstructure is precious because the foundation is precious. In other places, he, he goes on to talk about how uh, built upon this foundation is the work of the apostles and the prophets. 
Uh, and this then is to us their teachings, which we have in the scriptures. If you wonder why the Bible is so central to any church, any, any true gospel church, it is because we have in the scriptures the teachings of the apostles and the prophets, which tell us all about Christ and tell us about faith and tell us how to live by faith and what the future holds for those that are the Lord's. And so uh, the scriptures are precious to us and the apostles and the prophets are built upon that foundation of Jesus Christ. And then now for 2000 years, ever since the day of Pentecost, this building has, has, has being been built. That's a horrible way to say it, but that's all that seemed to come to my mind. Uh, it is, it has been built as the gospel has gone forth. And as people have heard the gospel have received Christ have then become a part of the structure and then also become workers in this grand construction. And uh, we put in there uh, at the top, Bethel Church 2008, not that we're the pinnacle of the church in any way. We are one little brick in the building, but chronologically speaking, here we are in 2009 now with uh, our responsibility to, uh, to build. So every Christian is a builder in the building. The question is not whether you are or not. The question is whether you are a good one or not. What is the quality of the work and the workmanship that you are providing as you as a Christian are a part of building this, the kingdom of God, building the church? And this passage and many others talk about the fact that we are going to be judged by Christ regarding the quality of the service the sacrifice and the stewardship that we have offered to him in our life. And this is what uh, this passage talks about as this purging fire, that our lives are going to be evaluated like, it's not that we're going to, we don't burn, it's, it's that our service will be tested by fire. And fire, of course, is a great testing agent. And uh, we, slightly different analogy, but we use this picture uh, from Hurricane Ike as a picture of what Paul is saying here. And this is, this is uh, a community, I think it's in Galveston, and Hurricane Ike came through, and you can see what it did to the rest of the community. But you have this one lone house standing there. And we ask the question, in this neighborhood, how would you know which construction company did a really good job? How would you know which uh, foundation workers put a pretty good foundation down. How would you know which framers did a really good job with high quality material? How would you know which roofing company uh, put a really great roof on? Like, how would you know? And the answer is obvious. The one that endures is the one that shows that its quality of workmanship was high. And that is what Paul is saying here as well, is that our lives will be tested and that the things that come through that testing, the things in our life that come through that testing, like gold, silver, and precious stones, things that endure into eternity will be richly rewarded. The things of our life that had no eternal value that we gave ourselves to, that we maybe even thought were really important at the time, will also be tested by fire, and they will be shown to be like wood, hay, and stubble. In other words, they do not survive, they do not endure. And there will then be no reward for all of those things that we gave ourselves to uh, that had no eternal value. 
And so the fruit of this in verse 14 is that there are some who will receive a reward. And in verse 15, there are some that will suffer the loss of reward. And I want you to begin thinking about your life, our lives, and asking the question, well, which one will I be? What will be true for me? So what is clear then is that our eternal dwelling, as we look to the future and we anticipate from what we can tell in Scripture what it is like in eternity, what we can see here is that uh, eternal life and salvation are the same for every Christian. They are the same. However, our eternal dwelling and the reward that we will enjoy in eternity is not the same. For everybody. There are some that will be richly rewarded. There are some that will receive no reward at all. That's what he says here when he says some will be saved, but only as through the flame. The end of their life at the, at the judgment seat of Christ, there is no, there's nothing to show at all. And this is, I didn't mention this, but this is, this is what the Bible describes as the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema seat judgment. When we all will stand before the Lord and will give an account for our life and his perfect wisdom and knowledge and justice, those eyes of, of those, those burning eyes of, of perfect, impartial justice and evaluation will be placed upon the quality of our life and the rewards of eternity will be based upon what he perceives and discerns in us. So this is a very sobering thing. This is a very critical truth for our church. If I, listen, if I live today for today, someday I will count myself a fool. If you lived this week for what this week had to offer purely, you someday will call yourself a fool. Imagine all of the people who uh, have, have professed faith in Christ and uh, have sort of uh, viewed it like a waiting game. I'm just sort of waiting around until I get to uh, step into eternity. How many millions, truly, of Christians are going to get to the other side and are going to look back at their life and the opportunities that they had to serve Christ and to sacrifice for Him and to be a steward of all the opportunities and the things and the resources that God put at our disposal and to recognize recognized how selfish we were, how, how committed to comfort we were, how committed to convenience we were, and to recognize that there is no reward for any of those things. What a fool we will call ourselves. I wish I could go back and do it all over again. But you see, here's the good news. We're not there yet. We're now here today, and there is still the opportunity to view life from that eternal perspective and to live today in a way that when I'm dead, I'm glad I did. And that's the goal of this message, is to motivate us biblically, truly, truthfully, to live in such a way that someday I'll be glad that I did. That's what I'm hoping happens uh, today. So towards that goal, you can look at today's message and next week's, which I got to tell you, I'm excited about today. I am really excited about next week's message, truly. Uh, I already got a lot of it written already, and I'm, next week is, I'm really excited about it. So um, these two messages uh, were, are basically like application messages from 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. So we're not plowing ahead in the text, but we're stopping and saying, what does this mean? And what does the Bible, how does the Bible fill in what Paul is saying here? 
So the question I would imagine that uh, most of us, uh, if you're tracking with me, would be asking is, okay, so you're saying to me that if we live today faithfully to the Lord, serve him, uh, that he is going to reward us. Well, then, like, what are these rewards? What are they? What are we talking about here? So let's answer that question as best we can, at least, uh, from the scriptures. And the Bible talks, uses a a few uh, key words when it talks about what these rewards are, uh, what they are. And uh, so let's just walk through some of the main ones. Here's the first. When the Bible talks about uh, eternity, it talks about reward or inheritance. Let me give you some examples from scripture. I got a lot of, lot of scripture here today. If you're taking notes, you better moisten the pen because uh, we got a lot. Here's some examples. Luke chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people hate you and revile you. Some of you are going, that sounds like my week. Well, why are they reviling you? On account of the Son of Man. In other words, for the sake of Christ. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. Here we have uh, Hebrews 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That's a part of faith, is believing not only that God exists, but that he he is a rewarding God. He is a giving God. Colossians 3, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Well, now why would I do that? Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Hebrews 11, verse 26. Why did Moses, ever thought about, why, why didn't Moses just sit there in Egypt and take it cool? I mean, he had the kingdom. He was a prince. You saw the movie? Uh, He was... He was, I mean, he had, it, he had life good there in, in Egypt. And yet he left all of that to lead the people of Israel into the wilderness and all of their wanderings and all that. Why would Moses do it? The writer of Hebrews tells us that the reason that he did it is that he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. He lived today in light of the reward of tomorrow. 1 Peter 1, 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. 2 John, verse 8, here's a key one. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what you have worked for, but may win a full reward. And then Revelation 22, verse 12, behold, I, this is now Jesus talking, behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. And this last one in particular are amongst the last words in the entire Bible and are nearly the last words that Jesus says to us in scripture. So we better, we ought to pay attention to that. Okay, here's his last words. What does he want us to know? He says, I want you to know that I am coming soon. And when I come, I'm bringing my reward with me. And by the way, that it will be, it will be divvied out and doled out according to what you have done. Might we not need to pay attention to that? So we see then from these passages that the reward 
whatever this is, we haven't filled this in totally yet, but the reward is given by Christ to his people based upon the service that they have offered to him in their life. That's the first thing. All right. The second word that is often used when, in Scripture when it talks about this is crown or crowns. And I would imagine if you've ever heard teaching on these rewards, you've probably heard messages about these crowns. So, first of all, let's look at some of the passages that talk about crowns. Here we have James 1.12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4.8, kind of his uh, last memoir here. He says... Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And 1 Peter 5, 4, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So you've, if, if you've been a Christian very long, you've probably heard teachings on these crowns. And uh, I don't know about you, but I just don't know about this because the thought of wearing a crown for all eternity. I'm not just so, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't, that doesn't excite me that much wearing a crown. Now last night they all kind of nodded their heads in agreement with me. Maybe I didn't say it so well, but to, I mean, do you want to wear a crown forever see it just doesn't excite me and here now then is where i think that the 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 uh the cultural thing is fighting against us understanding what the bible is actually telling us when it talks about these crowns we don't understand what it meant back in the day so just to talk briefly about what the what a crown meant in the biblical culture to have a crown was eminently desirable not because of the crown itself Listen to me, not because of the crown itself, but because of the honor and the blessing that possessing a crown meant. Let me say that again. It wasn't about the crown. It was about the honor and the blessing and the distinction that having the crown meant. There are many crowns in, uh, in the Old Testament. Three primary purposes of crowns in the Old Testament. First of all was consecration they would put a crown upon a kind of crown upon the head of a priest and he was set apart for his holy duties so they would consecrate somebody with a crown second thing they would use them for is coronation they would place the crown upon the head of a new king and we're probably most familiar with that sort of imagery of now here you are the king coronation the third uh, purpose of a crown was for exaltation so that the athlete who wins the race is given a kind of crown of, uh, of vegetation. I don't know what they use in the little, you know, the things, the, the victor's crown. <laughs> or if you were a hero of the war, they would put something on your head and it exalted you. It meant, it meant that you had distinction. And importance. So, as we think about a crown, 
I, I, I don't want you to think about a metallic crown, a physical crown. This is what a crown, uh, what a crown meant. A state of honor or blessing for those who wore them. A state of honor or blessing for those who wore them. Receiving a crown was not about the value of the crown. It was about the value of the honor that having the crown produced in your life. Let me give you another example. Listen to what is said about Jesus Christ. This is Revelation 19. Describing what Christ is like. This is post, uh, uh, post-resurrection. This is, this is Christ in his glory. Here's what it says. His eyes are like blazing fire. And on his head are many crowns. Now that's kind of a, that's a difficult image, isn't it? Like on his head are many crowns. Are they like stacked like Tupperware on his head? Is that what this is actually saying? That there are physically lots of crowns on his head? No, that is not what it's, it's saying. It's, it's trying to describe the honor and the glory of Christ. And in the culture, the thing that brought honor and glory or symbolized that was a crown. And so upon his head are many crowns. Why? Because he is glorious and wonderful. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon the throne, as the hymn says. What is that saying? Give massive glory to him because he is worthy of it. That's Christ. So the crowns then are symbolic. This is the thing I want you to realize. They are symbolic of the honor and the blessing that Christ is going to give to his faithful servants. Now, the other mistake I think that people make when they think about this whole crown thing and eternal reward thing, sadly, comes from one of my favorite hymns. I love this hymn. When I see it's going to be in the order of service, I'm like, yeah, I love to sing this hymn. I sing it to the Lord in my private devotions often. But uh, one of the stanzas of the hymn, Holy, 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 is unhelpful. This is what it says. Holy, 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 all the saints adore thee. Casting down their golden crowns uh, around the glassy sea. So, the image there is is that we get the crowns and then we give them back to him. And I've heard people that, that, and they say it very, they're very sincere as they say this, but they'll say, you know, I just can't wait to get to heaven and to cast my crowns at his feet. Now, this whole image comes from Revelation 4, where the 24 elders are around the throne. There's 24 elders. Who the elders are, I don't know. But there's 24 elders around the throne. And every time the angels praise the Lord, they take their crowns, put them before uh, God, and they, they bow down in worship. Okay? There is no passage in the Bible that says that we cast our crowns before the Lord. None. And I'm... Gl- frankly glad for that because the thought then for many people is, well, why should I labor for rewards and I'm going to give back to him anyway? Here you go. Thank you very much. Now throw them back to me. Oh, I just won't worry about it then. See, this is the thinking, but I don't think that it's true. So 
I, I, and, and I could be wrong with this, but I do not believe that we're actually going to be wearing crowns on our heads for all of eternity, and I personally am glad about that. Uh, Christ is going to give honor and blessing like a crown to us. Perhaps Thursday night's uh, national championship football game is a helpful uh, example of what we're talking about. I, as a very uh, committed uh, sports fan, watched the game. Not that I cared that much about who who won, but it's the national championship. So those that are sports people watch these things, even if they don't care who wins. And that was me. Um, Although I was kind of cheering for Florida because I like Tim Tebow. But um, anyway, if you watch the game... Uh, like I did, then you know that the Florida Gators won the national championship. They were crowned national champions. And I watched the game, and I watched the post game, and I saw the stuff that happened afterwards, and I didn't see one Florida Gator walking around with a crown on his head. Not one. But they were crowned national champs, meaning that they had now the honor and the distinction that came with being national champions champions. And that, I think, is what this is all about. A third word that is often used is the word treasure. Treasure. Back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Apparently, there is a way to live this life in a way that you are laying up treasure in heaven. And we've talked about this uh, at length, that, that uh, we are to be stewards of the things that God puts in our life here. We're not to live for here, but we are to live in such a way that we are putting treasure in heaven. Where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. Luke chapter 12, verse 18, the parable of the rich fool who had all this money. He thought, what should I do? I'll just build bigger barns and I'll sit back and, and I'll take it easy. And, and, and God says, to, you're going to die tonight. And then now what's going to happen to everything that you have? And here now is God's commentary uh, to him. Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. There is a way to live where you are rich here and impoverished before God. And that is what this rich fool did. Finally, Paul writes uh, to, to rich people, tells Timothy actually to tell the rich this, tell them that they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a foundation for the future. So there is treasure to come. And the treasure, by the way, of of heaven is not money. Someday we are going to look back at the way that we lived and the way that we loved money and how all all the work and the time and the effort and how much we thought about it and worried about it. We're going to think back to these days that we're living right now and our perspective on money and we're going to laugh about it and we'll probably grieve. Because there will be no there will be no money in heaven. There will be no money in the new earth. There won't be any need of that anymore. Real treasure in eternity. The thing that is going to be in a way like money to us today. The thing that people are going to crave in eternity. Is the fullness of knowing Christ. It is the richness and the deepness of fellowship with him. The capacity for joy in him 
and the fullness of divine experience. This is going to be what we are, like if you think about the way that this world runs after money in eternity, in the new heaven and the new earth, we will run after that. We will want to max that out. That'll be the currency of heaven. This is Psalm 16, verse 11. In thy presence is fullness of joy, and at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. Eternity is It is physical. We've talked about this. We are going to be on the new earth, which is going to be something like this one, only a lot better. And we are going to have bodies and we are going to live in society and we're going to hike and we're going to work and we're going to smell and eat and run and dance and and play golf and all these other things we're going to do. And that in this existence, there will be pleasure. And what I want to talk with you about next week is how is it that everybody that is in heaven experiences fullness of joy and yet some have more of it. This I believe to be what this, this is what uh, the scriptures are calling us to, to recognize and to realize that the way that I live my life in this life is expanding and growing the capacity that I have to experience the thing in heaven and on the new earth that I'm going to want more than anything else, and that is more of Him. Because in eternity, Christ is the treasure. He is the treasure, and the experience of knowing Him, and the glory of, 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 of honor from Him, and, and for His pleasure in my life, this will be the thing that will bring me a overflowing joy. And for Christ to be the treasure in that life and to maximize in that life, he must be the treasure in this life. You see the, the, the whole perspective that, oh yes, I'm just waiting to get to heaven in Christ. Oh yes, this is sort of important and all that. We're going to get to heaven like the man in 1 Corinthians 3 and be saved as only through the flames. Nothing to show for it in my life. But as I treasure him in this life, as Paul talks about in Philippians, I want to know Christ more than anything else, I want to know Him. For me to live is, is Christ, to die is gain. Why? Because I get more of Him. That perspective, as I go through trials and troubles, and as I sacrifice, and as I am inconvenienced in order to serve Jesus, these are growing my heart's capacity in this life to love Him, and in the next life for Him to reward me for it. And that is how some people are going to step into eternity and they're going to have a wee little capacity for a fullness of joy. And others who have served him faithfully and loved him and sacrificed and given their life to him will step into eternity with a big capacity to experience the fullness of joy that he will lavish upon us out of his generosity. So, as best I can tell, that's what the treasure is about. That's what the riches are. And those that love Christ will want it a lot. Now, trying to anticipate questions that might be thinking in a sort of logical way, the first question we'd say, well, what are these rewards exactly? We've talked about that. If you're tracking with me, the next thing you're wondering about is, well, what then is the criteria for God giving these rewards out? Okay, because if the rewards sound really wonderful, what's the... Like, how am I being evaluated exactly? And so let's talk about this a little bit. And even as I ask the question, what is the criteria for commendation from Christ? 
I want to make sure that there is no confusion about something because the last thing that I want to happen this morning is for you to come here and then to leave and say, I'm going to really go and I'm going to try my very best in order to be saved. I, I'm hearing now that this is somehow based upon what I do in my life. So I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do, do, do as much as I can in order to be saved. No, you're missing the point. Totally. Because salvation is not a result of what I do. It is entirely God's grace to me. It is, it is by faith. There is no merit in what I do in order to be saved, to have my sins forgiven. None of that. So do not leave here. Do not leave here, please. I will grieve if anybody leaves here thinking I got to go out there and I got to work very hard in order to get to heaven. That is not the point. Salvation is by grace alone, apart from human effort. And yet, at the same time, the Bible teaches that the rewards that we are given from Christ in eternity are based upon human effort. And we need to realize the, the distinction there. Because if we, if we miss either side of this, we do damage to our souls. When salvation by grace is turned into something that I earn, it is a different gospel and it's a gospel that won't save us. As Spurgeon said, if one crumb in the cupboard of your righteousness is your own, you are lost. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, as the hymn says. That all of that is focusing on the fact that I do not do anything to be saved. And yet at the same time, if we ignore all of these exhortations, and there's many more than, than what I have listed here. If we ignore these exhortations to live wisely in this life and to live this day for that day, as, as Luther said, there are two days to live for this day and that day. If I ignore all of these exhortations, we end up then with a risk-free, comfort-loving, consumer kind of Christianity. This is the Laodicean, lukewarm, blah, that's what you, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. That's what Jesus says about that kind of Christianity. But that's what you end up with. Because there is, well, hey, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to sit back. I'm going to take it easy. I'll serve Jesus if it's convenient. To call me if it's something I can work into my schedule. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll do something for you. But why, what's the motivation for it? I'm going to heaven anyway. I got heaven. Now I can get all that I want in this life as well. And people end up then approaching their faith like I'm in it for what it gives me in this life and I'm sort of okay with that life. Your best life now kind of perspective. That's what you end up with when you don't recognize that it is the sacrifices in this life. It is the trouble and the suffering and the intentional risk-taking for the sake of Christ in this life that Christ is promising to reward. And you know, where does all this superficial, shallow Christianity come from? People that don't recognize what's to come. And they live for now. It's like last night I was, uh, kind of my routine on Saturday nights is that I, I go to Beef O'Brady's for a hamburger at, right before the service. And I, and I go over my, my message and, and don't say, oh, well, let's go see Pastor Steve. No, don't come. I don't. Not looking for any fellowship or anything like that. I'm just going over the message, getting my heart ready and all that. So I was there and uh, the, the, the waitress came up and she's like, what are you doing? 
And um, I said, well, I'm, and I'm abbreviating here, but I, 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 I'm preparing for my, for my message tonight. And uh, I'm speaking about eternity. I said, do you have anything that maybe you could help me with? Like, give me some little, something I can maybe work it in. She goes, I don't know, but I'll think about it. So she disappears to go serve other people. And, and uh, as she left, I said, oh, I think I might have something for you. She goes, okay. So she leaves. She comes back. And uh, I asked her if she had anything for me. And she goes, no, nah, I don't really. I said, well, I have something for you. And so I pulled out the, the napkin and I put a, a dot on it and a long line. And I said, if this dot represents life and if this long line represents eternity, which do you think it would be most important to live for? She's like, hmm. And that's about as far as it went. But... Uh, <laughs> It's the same point that I'm making here with you is that, is that these scriptures are calling us to live for that day and to anticipate when I'm going to stand before the Lord and give an account for my life and my life is going to be evaluated by the one who loves me truly. He loves me, but he also is my master and has given very specific commands to his people and promises to reward everything that we have done by criteria now that i'd like to give uh you that uh describes this oh by the way i actually i got one other thing i want to say here's how i try to bring together salvation that is entirely by grace apart from human effort and rewards that are are based upon uh what we do in this life the way that i try to synthesize these is that the fact that all is from god everything is from god and The grace that God gives me in salvation is what produces my desire to serve him at all. So that in the end, really, he is the source of my service, which is how he gets the glory for it. It is I who do it. Nobody does it for you. Nobody's going to do it for you. But I serve him because I love him, and I love him because he first loved me, 1 John 4, 19. That's how I... Try to bring those two things together. Okay, so let's get to what you're wondering. Okay, Pastor Steve, that's very nice. But what are the criteria? Okay, here are some of the criteria that the Bible says will be uh, the basis for the rewards that Christ is promising. James 1.12, enduring temptation and trial. You do that, there's a reward for it. Now, how motivating is that uh, perhaps for you today? You come in here all bummed out about something, wondering if you're going to make it, troubled about something in your life, and you're wondering, why, why should I carry on with this thing? The Bible says, Jesus promises, that there is reward for those that are faithful in the midst of trial. And perhaps God will use that to encourage somebody today. I hope so. Enduring temptation. Diligently seeking God. Hebrews 11, verse 6. Motivated by God's praise, not man's. This is the point that Jesus makes. He says, hey, when you go to pray, don't be like the religious leaders here and go, hey, everybody, I'm praying now. I want you all to know I'm going to go pray right now. I'm going to the closet to pray right now. I'll let you know when I get back. Don't do that. Go somewhere where nobody knows that you're praying. Go somewhere where nobody but your father can know, and then your father will, he will reward you. When you give, don't blow trumpets saying, here I'm giving everyone, and here's the amount, you know. Don't put your tithing envelope right side up in the offering plate so everybody knows how much you gave. Don't do that. Why? Because you've already received your reward. When you serve the Lord 
as best you can, do it in a way that only God can know and then God will reward you. So all of this doing things for man's praise and impressions and what people think of me, you've already got your reward. Dying for Christ. Martyrs will, I have to believe, will be richly rewarded for their sacrifice. The degree of sacrifice that we give. Jesus says, no one who has left father, brother, mother, sister, in-laws, la, 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 all these things, will fail to receive 100 times as much. In other words, in the scale of rewards, God measures the degree to which we sacrifice for him. The more that you have left, the more that you have given up, the more that you have been, uh, that, 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 you're, that you've done this, you've suffered for the sake of Christ, the more he is going to reward us. And the opposite is also true. The less that we have done that, the more that we've sought our comfort, the more that we have just thought about ourselves in, the, in this life, the less we will be rewarded. There's a scale. Faithfully doing God's will and longing for Christ's return brings a reward. Acts of kindness are rewarded. Hospitality, this you know, cups of cold water passage, not one will be forgotten. Think of that. That's something that's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, think of the mind of God. How many people are, six billion people in the world, I don't know how many, maybe a billion are, are at least professing Christians, and this has been going on for all of these years, and somehow in the economy of God, in the mind of God, he doesn't forget even little things like cups of cold water. Whoa. <laughs> wow. He doesn't. Faithfulness and service, it is required that a man be found faithful, a steward be found faithful. Faithfulness is richly reward, rewarded. And then stewardship of abilities and opportunities that God gives to us. The parable of the minas and the parable of the talents where one is given five and one is given three and one is given one and that the five makes five, five more and the three makes three more. And you see in that that the three is not blamed for not making five and the, and the five is not commended for making more than the three. There is a scale of, of stewardship. How much were you given? How many opportunities did you have? What are the gifts? What are the, all the other things that you've been given? And this will then be the measure of what we did with it. So all of these, and I'm sure many more in the, in the mystery of the mind of God, are put into the mix as basis for evaluation and reward for us in heaven. And what I want you to recognize, friends, listen to me, is that salvation and eternal life are the same for all Christians. But eternity and the honor and the distinction in the new earth are not the same. Some will be richly rewarded and others will not. And of course, the thing that I want you to be thinking to yourself is what about me? What about me? So why don't we take another look at this list? Do it. Go ahead right now. Go slow. Go slow. And this may not seem that important to some of, some of us here, but I'm here to tell you right now, someday, nothing will be more important to you than this. Something else that I think is noteworthy here is how God measures so differently than we do. 
when we look to people that we think are really great Christians or eminent Christians or some, of some kind, we, we tend to look at people that sort of stand out in some way. They've done some really remarkable thing or they've got some big ministry or they, you know, they've, they've somehow got men's applause in some way where they go, oh, those are the people that are really going to be some, somebody's in the, in, the new, in the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, I don't think so. I think, I, and I was talking with some people about after the service last night, I honestly, I think the people that are going to be the somebodies on the new earth are going to be people that we have never heard of. There's going to be some lady, some Indian lady, who, uh, uh, you know, served in some village somewhere, and she was faithful for 40 years, taking care of some group of children, but she did it faithfully and she prayed for them by name and she loved them and she just did it as a ministry to the Lord. She never had nothing and nobody ever heard of her. And I have to believe that that's the person who's going to be a somebody in heaven. This is what Jesus said. You know, the judgment day is going to be a shocking day. Many who are first are going to be least in the kingdom. And many who are last will be first. And this, I believe, is what he is saying to us. That God's evaluation is so different than ours. All right. What's the point? Here's what I want you to get today. Listen. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. We all have the same opportunity. Today, we are all alive, are we not? (laughs) We are alive. We have a day. We have a week in front of us. We can't change what we did last week, but this week is in front of us. And this is another week, and today is another day in which Christ himself is is observing and is watching and is longing. Here's the thing. He wants to reward his people. He is not, he, he, he is generous. He is not cheap. He is generous. He longs to reward us. But this reward comes on the basis of our service and sacrifice and stewardship to him. And so it's like, it's like the napkin with the, with the, with the wa- uh, waitress at the restaurant. We're going to be dead soon. You are going to be dead soon. And the things that are weighing on your heart right now and that maybe you think are important, I am very confident that when you are dead, it's not going to matter anymore. It's not. You're not going to care about it. And in that moment, when we leave this life and we step into the next, and I don't know exactly the chronology of it, but when we stand before Christ, think of it. There he is in all of his resplendent glory. And his eyes, like like the sun. Imagine, it's, it's like standing in front of the sun. That's Christ in his glory. And there he is, and he's just... And we stand before him to give an account for our life. I, I hear people sometimes, they'll be like, oh, you don't think that all of our deeds are going to be put up on a big screen and all the people in heaven are actually going to know about it? You're not going to care. You are not going to care what Susie or Joni or or Larry think about what they see on the screen. There's no screen anyway. You're not going to care. 
There is only going to be one opinion that you are going to care one whit about, and that is his. What is he thinking? What is he going to say? And our minds will spin over memories in our life, and we're going to be thinking about the failures, the successes, the things we did, the things we wish that we did, and we will step before him. And we will give an account. That day is coming for you and for me. What is he going to ask us? Scripture clues us in. It might be something like this. Describe for me how you served me in your life. You might just begin thinking about how you're going to answer. How would you answer that? Describe for me how you served me in in your life. What are you going to say? He says, I gave you opportunities to share with others about me. Could you please tell me what you did with those? Please list for me the sacrifices you made for my sake and tell me what you gave up to do it. Tell me every time you died to yourself. To serve me. Give me as many examples as you can. Where you did what you did. Because you loved me. More than yourself. It's coming. It's coming. What are you going to say? What are you going to say? And the question, of course, will be if what I say passes through the fire of his holy evaluation and comes out with anything to endure, anything to show of my life, or will it in the end my life be wood, hay, and stubble? That will be a sad day if that is the case. And I've got to tell you, I don't know if I have ever preached a message or ever will preach a message that could have a more dramatic impact and transformation upon our church than this one. Can you imagine a couple thousand people passionately living for that day? What would that be like? Can you imagine the impact and the transformation that that would produce? I believe this is the truth that sends us in love across the street to our neighbors with love and compassion and with a message. Why do you do that? Why do you get to know them? Do you know their names, even? This is what motivates us to serve inconveniently. Like, if we really got this, there would be a scramble for the most inconvenient service opportunities in the church. Why? Because those are the ones that receive the greatest reward. The easy ones, the timely ones, the ones we can work into our schedule and it's no big, no big deal to us are also not a big deal to him. The trials that we would treasure would be the ones that hurt the most. Because by enduring in them, we can look forward to our reward. And you see, friends, here's the deal. When we really believe this, It's one thing for it to be taught and, okay, it's in the Bible, but then we go, you're you're all about to get into your cars and go home. 
And you're going to spend this week. And when we get back into the week and we get back into what we're comfortable with and we get back into our routine and what we're saying here sort of fades away into our memory, this is the danger of it. Why? Because you're going to die. You are going to die. And you have one life by which Christ is going to evaluate. What are you going to do with it? Now, old people, your, your days are numbered. And if you've not done much, I would get busy if I was you. I don't mean any joke by that. That's, that's, the, that's the flat truth. Young people, it has always been young people, when they've gotten a hold of this, that have gone out and done great things for God. Young people that are here, you might be looking at your career and how can I make the most money and your parents are maybe even encouraging you with that. I hope not. Why don't you look at your life and say, how can I max my life out for Jesus? Someday you will be really glad that you did. You see, this changes everything when we really get it and when we really believe it. Because we embrace the suffering and we embrace the service opportunities and we embrace the sacrifices and we embrace being stewards of everything that God has given to us. Why? Because I want to lay up treasure there. I'm looking forward to seeing Christ there and I want to be commended by him and to hear well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want. This is what sends people like our missionary Ruth Ann Mahone to a country I can't even tell you where she is for security reasons, to try to reach out to a fairly dangerous religious community there. Why is she there? Will she be glad she did that someday? You bet. You bet. This is what empowers Christians to obey God when it hurts and when it costs them something. Why? Because like Moses, we're looking forward to our reward. And this is even what Jesus did, friends. This is what Jesus did. Hebrews 12 says, why, why did one of the reasons that he went to the cross, why did he endure that? Because he was looking forward to the joy set before him. He endured the cross and despised its shame and is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He was looking forward to his reward. And this is the way that it works. This is just the way that it works. Our light and momentary trials are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. I'm glad I could tell you that. The, the trial that you are in and the sorrow that you are in when you faithfully obey Christ and work through that trial in obedience to him in a hard way and in a hard time, Christ, he, he doesn't forget he does not forget, and he promises that he is going to reward you. And so we hang in there, and we don't punt, and we don't quit. We're not like people, oh, I'm going to give it a try, and then I'm out of here because it doesn't work for me now. No, no. You know what? It may not work now. It may not work now. But someday, the whole thing's going to come together. And we believe, we have to believe, every sacrifice, every stewardship, every service is going to be rewarded by Christ. And I can just tell you, for those of you that do, you cannot fathom. Someday you will struggle to fathom the reward 
that Christ is going to give. Imagine if you are Christ and you have infinite riches, infinite honor, and you love a faithful servant. And you've promised you're going to lavish him with reward. Think of what he is going to do. He is a generous king. Let's just quiet our hearts right now. And I want to give you some time. Just think about this. Give you a few moments to think about your life. What have you done? What are you doing? What are you hoping to do? That might translate into commendation from Christ. Father, our perspective is very limited. We see-